Chapter Nine of Ticonderoga by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nine. There is the fate of another connected with the events of that night, of whom some notice must be taken, from the influence which his destiny exercised over the destinies of all. With greater promptness and celerity than had been expected from him, even by those who knew him best, Walter Prevost had executed the business entrusted to him and was ready to set out from Albany a full day at least before his return had been expected by his family. Fortune had favoured him, it is true. He had found the commander-in-chief in the city, and at leisure. A man of a prompt and active mind, he had readily appreciated the promptness and activity of the lad, and his business had been dispatched as readily as circumstances permitted. A boat sailing up the Hudson with some stores and goods for traffic was found, to carry him a considerable way on his journey, and he was landing at a point on the western bank of the river some seventeen miles from his father's house, at the very moment that Mr. Prevost, Lord H. and Edith were mounting by the side of the little lake to pursue their journey. The way before him was rough and uneven, and somewhat intricate, but he thought he knew it sufficiently to make his way by it, before sunset, to a better-known part of the country and he hurried on with youthful confidence and vigour, his rifle in his hand, his knapsack on his shoulder, and a good large hunting-knife in his belt, and with great agility of limbs and no small portion of bodily vigour, he would have proved no contemptible opponent in the presence of any single enemy. But he never thought of enemies, and all in his bosom was courage and joy and expectation. Whatever great cities and camps and courts might have offered, Albany, at least, a small provincial capital, filled with a staid and somewhat rigid people, and only enlivened by the presence of a regiment or two of soldiers, had no attraction for him, and he was heartily glad to escape from it again to the free life around his paternal dwelling, and to the society of his father and Edith, and Atezza. Steadily he went along, climbed the hills, strode along the plain, and forded the river, the traces of cultivation soon became fewer, and then ceased, and following resolutely the path before him, two hours passed before he halted even to look around. Then, however, he paused for a minute or two to consider his onward course. Two or three Indian trails crossed the spot where he stood, one of them so deeply indented in the ground as to show that its frequent use existed from a very ancient date. Its course seemed to be in the direction which he wanted to go, and he thought he remembered having followed it some months before. Across it ran the settler's way, broader and better marked out, but not very direct to his father's house, and he was hesitating which he should take when the sound of creaking wheels and the cry used by ploughmen and teamsters to their cattle showed him that someone was coming who was likely to give him better information. That information seemed the more necessary as the day was already far on the decline, and he had not yet reached a spot of which he could be certain. A moment or two after, coming up a lane in the wood, as it would be called in England, appeared a heavy ox-wagon drawn by four steers, and loaded with three women and a number of boxes, while by the side of the rude vehicle appeared three men on foot and one on horseback, each very well armed, together with no less than five dogs of different descriptions. Walter instantly recognised in the horseman the good farmer who lived some ten miles to the southwest of his father's house. 
The farmer was a good-humoured, kindly-hearted man, honest enough but somewhat selfish in his way, always wishing to have the best of a bargain, if it could be obtained without absolute roguery, yet willing enough to share the fruits of his labour or his cunning with anyone who might be in need. On the present occasion, however, he was either sullen or stupid, and it was indeed clear that he and his male companions had been drinking quite enough to dull the edge of intellect in some degree. Those on foot went on without even stopping the oxen to speak with their young neighbour, and the farmer himself only paused for a moment or two to answer Walter's questions. "'Why, Mr. Whittier,' said the young gentleman, "'you seem to be moving with all your family.' "'Aye, aye,' answered the farmer, a look of dull cunning coming to his face. "'I don't like the look of things. I had a hint. I guess there are other places better than the forest just now. Well, not so warm, mayhap.' "'Why, what is the matter?' asked Walter. "'Has anything happened?' "'Oh, no,' answered the farmer, looking uncomfortable and giving his bridle a little sort of jerk as if he wished to pass on. "'The forest's too full of Indians, for my notion. But as you and your father are so fond of them, and they of you, there's no harm will come to you, I guess.' His manner was almost uncivil, and Walter moved out of his way without even asking the question he had intended. The man passed on, but suddenly he seemed to think better of the matter, and turning round in the saddle, called out in a voice much louder than necessary, considering the distance between them, "'I say, Master Walter, if you're going home, you'd better take that deep trail to the right. I guess it's shorter and safer, and them red devils, or some other vermin, have set fire to the wood on there. It's not much of a thing just yet, but there's no knowing how it will spread. However, if you keep to the west, you'll get on.' "'I'm going to more civilised parts for a month or two, "'seeing as I've got all my crops in safe.' "'As soon as these words were uttered, "'he turned and rode after his wagon, "'and Walter at once took the Indian trail "'which the other had mentioned. "'About half a mile further on, "'he for the first time perceived the smell of smoke, "'and as soon as he reached the summit of another hill beyond, "'the whole scene of the conflagration was before his eyes.' Between the spot where he stood and his father's house stretched a broad belt of fire and smoke, extending a full mile to the north, farther than he had expected from the vague account of the farmer, and the cloud of brownish vapour had rolled so far up the opposite slope that the lad could neither see the dwelling itself nor distinguish what spot the fire had actually reached. Ignorant of the absence of Mr. Prevost and Edith, and well aware how rapidly the fame extended, when once kindled in a wood, after a long season of dry weather, Walter's heart sank as he gazed, but he lost no time in useless hesitation. The sun was already setting, the distance was still considerable, and he resolved at once to break through the fiery circle, if it were possible, and reach his home at once. Onward he plunged then, down the side of the hill, and the moment he descended the whole scene was shut out from his sight so completely, that but for the strong and increasing smell of burning pine-wood, and a feeling of unnatural warmth, he would have had no intimation that a fire was raging close at hand. As he came nearer and nearer, however, a certain rushing sound met his ear, something like that of a heavy gale of wind sweeping the forest, and the smoke became suffocating, while through the branches and stems of the trees a red light shone, especially toward the south and west, "'showing where the fire raged with the greatest fierceness. 
Breathing thick and fast, he hurried on, lighted by the flames alone, for the sun had sunk by this time, and the dense cloud of smoke which hung over this part of the wood shut out every star, till at length he reached the very verge of the conflagration. Some hundreds of acres lay before him, with trees, some fallen one over the other, some still standing, but deprived of foliage, masses of brushwood and long trailing vines, all glowing with intense heat. He felt that to proceed in that direction was death. He could hardly draw his breath. His face felt scorched and burning, and yet the drops of perspiration rolled heavily from his forehead. Retreating a little to escape the heat, he turned his steps northward, but by that time he had lost the trail, and he was forcing his way through the brushwood, encumbered by his rifle and knapsack, when suddenly, by the light of the fire shining through the trees, he saw a dark figure, some twenty or thirty yards before him, waving to him eagerly, and apparently calling to him also. The roar and crackling of the burning wood was too loud for any other sounds to be heard, but the gestures of the figure seemed to direct him toward the south again, and obeying the signs he soon found himself once more upon an Indian trail. The next instant the figure he had seen was upon the same path and a little nearer, but it was that of an Indian, and in the smoky light Walter Prevost could not distinguish his tribe or nation. He advanced cautiously then, with his thumb upon the cock of the rifle, but as soon as he was within hearing the man called to him in the Oneida tongue, and in a friendly tone, telling him to follow, and warning him that death lay to the westward. Thrown off his guard by such signs of interest, the lad advanced with a quick step, and was soon close to his guide, though the man walked fast. "'Is the house burnt, brother?' asked the youth eagerly. "'What, the lodge of the pale-face?' said the Indian. "'No, it stands fast.' "'Thank God for that,' said Walter Prevost in English. But the words had hardly passed his lips when he suddenly felt his arms seized from behind. His rifle was wrested from his hands, and he himself cast backward on the ground. Two savage faces glared above him, and he expected to see the gleam of the deadly tomahawk the next instant.' "'What now?' he exclaimed in an idea. "'Am I not your brother? "'Am I not the son of the Black Eagle "'and a friend of the Children of the Stone?' "'There was no answer, "'but in dead silence the Indians proceeded "'with rapid hands to bind his arms "'with thongs of deerskin, "'and then, raising him on his feet, "'forced him to retrace his steps "'along the very trail which had brought him thither. End of chapter 9